Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. We're so thrilled to bring you this informative episode. The topic is stroke epidemiology and risk factors. We broadcasted this live to our NeuroAcademy audience and we had a live Q&A session at the end. NeuroAcademy is a membership-based online environment outside of social media where you will have access to multiple evidence-based on-demand courses and engage with a thriving and a supportive community of people on a journey towards better brain health. You'll be connected with us as well as a team of moderators who will guide you. With your monthly or annual subscription, you will have access to monthly live Q&A sessions, live cooking sessions, live podcasts such as this one uh, with a Q&A session at the end. You'll have a Q&A session with remarkable health leaders, ongoing courses on lifestyle, nutrition and cooking, neuro coaching, anxiety and so many other topics related to brain health. You will also be able to get CE or CME credit if you're interested at the end of taking the course and also receive certification after each one of them. You'll get everything you need to achieve optimal health, a better, sharper memory and prevent cognitive decline. Join us by visiting neuroacademy.com. And now let's listen to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Susan, a 64 year old woman was sitting around her dining table, having dinner with her husband, her adult son and daughter who were visiting from out of town, so she made dinner and was so happy to have everyone around the table that evening. She was speaking with her husband about the new neighbors and realized suddenly that the family was looking at her strangely, very concerned, and they were trying to speak with her, but she couldn't quite understand them. And all of a sudden she felt disconnected from everything around her, as if she was floating. She tried to speak, but her tongue felt heavy and she felt like she couldn't move her lips to make words. Something was wrong. She felt a bit nauseated and her fork dropped out of her hand to the ground. She tried to move in her chair and realized that she couldn't really lift her right arm and her right leg felt very heavy as if it was stuck to something on the ground, like a piece of metal stuck to a magnet. Fear, that's all she felt. What is going on? She said to herself. She touched her right arm and then she touched her right leg and it felt like she was touching an object that didn't belong to her body. She touched her face and couldn't feel the right side of her face and her face was drooping on the right side and was wet from the drool from the right corner of her mouth. Her words were slurred and her saliva felt like glue. She started spitting it out and coughing because she couldn't really swallow anymore. Her husband jumped out of the chair and tried to pick her up, but she couldn't support herself on her right leg, so she sat down again. Her son picked his phone up and called 911 right away. The daughter ran next to her side and tried to prevent her from falling to that side. She was leaning to her right side, and her daughter held her tight in her arms. You're okay, mom. Everything's going to be okay. Her daughter's voice brought some comfort to her. She started tearing up because at this point, she was so scared. She held her husband's hand fiercely with her left hand and she sat there for what seemed like ages, but it was only about six minutes before the paramedics arrived. They walked in, they moved the furnitures away and they picked her up and placed her on a gurney and they went to the local emergency department. Susan was having a stroke. She had a history of poorly controlled high blood pressure and she smoked. 
Even before the gurney reached the emergency room building, a stroke nurse ran to receive Susan and her family and started speaking with her husband about the details of her presentation. As soon as she reached the emergency room, a big team of doctors, nurses, radiology technicians, pharmacists, about 15 people swarmed around her. They started placing IV lines, taking blood pressure readings, hooking up uh, the monitors, weighing her, and getting all kinds of vital information. Time is brain. Time is brain. That was the sign that was written on the wall of the emergency room. Every minute a stroke goes untreated, roughly 1.9 million brain cells die, which can lead to long-term disability and even death. The neurologist stepped in and started examining Susan, who was tearful at this point. She had a kind face, Susan thought to herself, and in that chaos, Susan focused on what the neurologist was trying to communicate to her, and she followed her instructions, but there were times that she couldn't really understand her clearly. Everything was blurred. The neurologist examined her, and uh, she was trying to get a stroke scale score to determine the extent of her weakness. Susan had loss of strength and sensation in her right arm and leg, and she had profound dysarthria or slurred speech. When she attempted to speak, no one really understood what she was saying. Even though she was trying to use the appropriate words, it was her pronunciation and enunciation that was affected profoundly. While she was being examined, another team started rolling the gurney towards the CT scan room, the radiology room. And the doctor and the nurses were walking alongside her, accompanying her and speaking with her and examining her while, while they were hurrying towards the radiology suite. She was transferred to a cold, slim table on the CT scanner, and she had an IV placed. The technician told her that she was going to have pictures of her brain taken, and a CT angiogram of her neck and head was done. She had some dye injected, and within a few minutes, she had her CT angiogram done, and it showed a clot blocking a major branch of the middle cerebral artery on the left side of her brain, causing occlusion of the blood reaching to an area about the size of a quarter, um, and it was located in the deeper aspects of the left side of her brain. All of this, the location and the size of the stroke, explained the symptoms that she was experiencing. And while she was still laying on the CT scanner, the neurologist ran to the waiting room to call her family and told the husband that they confirmed the stroke and they quickly decided that she was a candidate to receive a clot-busting medication called IV Altaplace. After going over a list of benefits and risks with the husband, Susan received the clot-busting medication right there in the imaging suite within about 40 minutes of the arrival to the emergency room. The goal is usually to keep the door-to-needle time less than 60 minutes. So they were successful. She was then admitted to a neuro ICU for about 24 hours where she was monitored. She was given blood pressure medication. And after being stable for about 24 hours, she was admitted to the general stroke service for further evaluation and workup. Her brain MRI showed an acute stroke and it involved the left lentiform nucleus and internal capsule with moderate to severe white matter disease. And these are terminologies that are used to identify the location of the stroke and what the brain essentially looked like. Her blood pressure was 183 over 100 when she reached the emergency room. That's pretty high. 
And over the period of admission, she was monitored and she was treated to achieve a long-term systolic blood pressure of less than 130. And for secondary stroke prevention, other medications and other treatments were uh, instituted. She was started on an antiplatelet medication, cholesterol medication. She was counseled and treated for smoking cessation. And over the next few days, she felt better. She regained her speech. Most of her strength in her arm and leg came back. And she was discharged to a rehabilitation facility for two weeks of speech, physical, and occupational therapy. The only deficit that she was left long-term was a weaker grip on her right hand and some weakness on the right side of her mouth. It just kind of seemed a little, a little flatter on the right side compared to her left side. Now, Susan was lucky because she received care at the right moment. and She was surrounded by people who actually made a decision for her right away. But most strokes don't happen that way. It's, it's not the case. A lot of people can't identify the symptoms of stroke and they just sleep it off or shake it off or they wait to see if it gets better or they don't have the insurance and they're unwilling to seek help for fear of all the medical bills that they have to deal with. Stroke is a life-threatening emergency and it needs to be addressed as soon as possible because any delay in care means more brain damage or not being eligible for treatments like IV alteplase or even mechanical thrombectomy, a procedure where clot is retrieved with a device. But what is more important than anything else is the knowledge that about 80 or sometimes even more than 80% of strokes are preventable. And that information hasn't reached each and every society, each and every community. And so the reason that we wanted to speak about stroke was to give you a picture of what an acute situation looks like and what we all can do to prevent this devastating disease. Beautifully stated. It's a, it's a story that we've, we're very familiar with. We've seen it thousands of times. It's not the same picture, um, uh, but it's uh, different versions of this. Uh, the thing about stroke is that it can manifest in any way possible from behavior changes to weaknesses, to language deficits, to visual deficits, to dexterity and, and balance issues in every way possible. Some of them are more common than others. And you'll talk about the epidemiology, but um, the, the importance of the fact is it has to do with the vasculature of the brain. And the vasculature of the brain is, is, is I mean, every aspect is affected. Every aspect of the brain is affected. And depending on what little tributary is, a, is, is uh, blocked matters. That's a different manifestation. What you described is the middle cerebral artery on the left side, which is a very common one. We see this fairly often, and that's where for majority is language centers. So I want to make sure that people understand that this was just one of the scenarios, but there are so many other scenarios, and the prevalence you'll speak about is so common. Agreed. Let's go over stroke epidemiology. Yes. In the United States, Stroke is the fifth leading cause of death, and approximately 85% of all strokes are ischemic, or the picture that I just painted right now. And the main focus of this podcast will be on the ischemic stroke. About 17.8% of those who are over the age of 45 years have experienced stroke symptoms. That's a lot. You know, when I read the statistics, I was surprised that, you know, close to about 20% of people have experienced stroke symptoms. But a larger percentage of individuals who may have 
um, the risk factors experience what we call or what we refer to as silent cerebral infarction or silent strokes. And the numbers could be as high as 30% in the population and it increases with age. Now, it's important to, to know that, um, you know, the, the amount of disability that stroke brings is way more than any other disease. It's all of a sudden people are left with significant physical, psychological, neuropsychological, and emotional disabilities for the rest of their lives. And even though we're doing a really good job at making sure that we treat it and give them rehabilitation and do secondary stroke prevention, a lot of these stroke cases are actually left with disabilities for the rest of their lives. Correct. Just for uh, edification, uh, ischemic versus hemorrhagic, those are the two types. Uh, ischemic is when their vessel is clogged, either because there's a spasm of the artery, less common, or there's a clot that actually is propelled from somewhere else, usually the heart, and, and blocks the artery, or, or, or just over time, the atherosclerosis, the artery just closes. So one of those three ways. And hemorrhagic is when the artery actually bursts. It's a, either a major artery or a, one of the smaller tributaries that, that just bursts and, and then there's bleeding. Uh, that's less common. Ironically, or uh, the, those numbers are different in different countries, which speaks to what we will talk about, epidemiology and lifestyle and all of that stuff. Absolutely. The mortality <laughs> is higher for hemorrhagic strokes compared to ischemic strokes because of that sudden release of blood or bleeding in the brain um, almost acts acts like a, uh, like a tumor. It has mass effect. So it tries to push against very vital parts of the brain and um, things like herniation can occur because there's so much pressure inside the brain that the, you know, the brain stem herniates through the canal where the spinal cord starts. And that is a very, very dangerous situation. And, and those are the places where the breathing centers and the the basic life-sustaining mechanisms are uh, contained within the brainstem. And if there's pressure put on there, on the brainstem, people stop breathing, their heart stops uh, functioning. So that's the herniation as a result of bleeding. Yeah. Um, close to 750,000 strokes occur in the United States every single year. And the recurrence is about 20% in five years. So say, for example, if somebody has had a stroke and if they don't seek care and if they don't start instituting measures, whether it's medication or a lifestyle for prevention of secondary stroke, they have a 20% of having another stroke at five years. And it, it makes sense because the risk factors for stroke are such that they cause long-term damage. Um, and we're gonna talk about and list all the risk factors, things like high blood pressure and high cholesterol and diabetes and things of that nature. Okay, so a little bit of positivity here. So over the past 30 years or more, um, both stroke incidence and mortality has decreased. And this has happened because uh, of, um, you know, uh, implementation of public health measures. Um, whether it's by the CDC or the American Heart Association of letting people know what stroke risk factors are, identification of stroke uh, symptoms. You know, they have these acronyms that are things like ACT FAST, F-A-S-T. F is for face, which means if you see a drooping of the face. A is for arms, which means if you see that one of the arm is dropping. S is for speech, if there's any slurring of speech or if a person says something that doesn't really make any sense. And T is time 
for calling 911. There is some addition of dizziness and gait in it as well nowadays. No, absolutely. Um, uh, and the symptoms that Aisha described are the common ones, the fast, but there are many others as well. And the 750,000 that you quoted does not include the silent strokes. So we think the numbers of strokes are massive. And if you take white matter disease, which we'll have a complete separate talk on that. I think so. We just decided that that was such a massive topic that we should have another hour of discussion about just white matter disease. And, and the reason for that is because it's, it's, nobody talks about it, yet it's the most prevalent thing we see on our pa patients with imaging. We do, probably out of all the specialties, we do the most imaging between dementia and, and stroke. And we see white matter disease ubiquitously all the time, yet nobody ever talks about it that much, as, as much as it should be. So the silent strokes plus the white matter, the vascular disease is, is prevalent, it's common, and yet we don't talk about it. And the manifestations are sometimes different. Even when they do happen, sometimes you have these things called neglect syndrome, which is pretty weird, pretty unusual, where one side of the world just disappears to this person. It's not that they can't think. They're actually talking to you, they're speaking to you, uh, and their, their ability to see is there, but their ability to understand that the other side of the world exists stops and abates. That's remarkable. Or Anton syndrome, where objects are become, become impermanent. Or uh, all these unusual behavioral uh, symptomology, like anisognosias. Those are the unusual where a person and personhood is uh, affected. Or simple things like blindness. All of a sudden, somebody comes in with one of the eyes um, uh, unable to see because a curtain came down. And that's because the vasculature behind the eye had a stroke. Uh, so lots of other manifestations as well, but the common ones are the ones that Aisha said, which is facial droop, weakness on one side of the uh, body, um, language difficulties. Those are the most common ones. Now, we said that there's been a decline in stroke incidence and mortality, but unfortunately, um, it's not across all subgroups of populations. Um, while stroke is more common in men compared to women when they're in the young, in the middle age category, women actually have a higher lifetime risk of stroke than men. Um, you know, the, the, the difference is pretty stark. It's 20 to 21% in women versus 14 to 17% in men. Wow. And they also tend to have poor functional outcome after a stroke, which means men tend to recover more than women um, after a stroke. And we're trying to still understand why that's so. Is it because of frailty? Is it because of not having resilience before a stroke? But that is the case. Women tend to suffer more from stroke. Or, or the, the inability of the system to recognize the differences between male and female. Right which we're becoming better at it, uh, learning more about it. But there are a lot of diseases where um, uh, we haven't known a lot about women's side of things. Right. Um, we're talking about blood pressure. For something as simple as blood pressure, it's not the same between men and women. There are some differences, and we're beginning to learn that. And blood pressure is the, the, the beast. We'll that's, talk about that yeah, in that, detail that, soon. That's, uh, um, so, we, so there's some systematic problems that are co contributing to women um, experiencing this more as well. Absolutely, absolutely. There's also a greater decline in death rate from strokes in uh, men 
compared to women. Um, so, so those are the differences that we're still trying to understand and study, but it's important to know. Now, that was the United States. Now, let's talk about global epidemiology of stroke. But even in the United States, the racial elements as well, we're talking about in certain populations, there are differences between the different races. And most of that has to do not so much as far as genetics, but access and information and resources and, and the lifestyle variable. Yes, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that. As far as global epidemiology of stroke is concerned, it's the second leading cause of death. Um, and in, in the last decade, incidence and mortality has decreased, but it's only seen in higher income countries. In middle and lower income countries, stroke incidence has actually increased and the absolute number of stroke deaths have increased over that time which is pretty sad, which says that we have to make sure that, you know, we look at the global impact of what we're, what we're doing as far as public health is concerned. And hopefully with the advent of internet and people to have access to it, we will do a better job at it. Now, coming back to your point of race and ethnicity, um, we know uh, that um, strokes are higher among black people compared to whites. And this has been studied extensively. The one cohort that has been studied and dedicated to understanding strokes in different racial groups is the REGARDS cohort. REGARDS stands for Reasons for Geographic and Racial Differences in Stroke, and it's conducted in the University um, of Alabama. And they found very significant disparities. The disparity is more prominent in young people compared to old people. Younger black people have four times higher risk of having stroke compared to white people. Um, the ratio is actually less and less as people get older, but this signifies the unmanaged vascular risk factors in young people mm -hmm. in that, in that uh, region. And we see that in San Bernardino. We see 40-year-olds, Hispanic and African-Americans that have strokes, 40-year-olds. I mean, uh, almost every week when we were in that clinic, we would see several people uh, in their 40s who had strokes. Absolutely. Despite all the public health measures, while we were seeing a decline in the incidence among white people between 1990 to 2005, stroke incidence has remained the same for black people. Mm -hmm. And the mean age of stroke death in younger uh, is younger among black people compared to white people. Um, also in among Hispanics and specifically in Mexican Americans, they seem to have higher risk of stroke in the younger age group compared to those who are non-Hispanic whites. Yeah, one thing that you always say, and, and I love that, that when you give when you give talks is that when we're talking about stroke, we're not talking about just that end-stage stroke. If you're seeing strokes in populations, there's a much larger group that is not having the overt stroke, but they're having the consequent vascular damage to the brain that's not manifesting as stroke, but it's causing a lot of attention, memory, cognitive, slowing, and all those that we will describe fairly soon. And you will recognize those symptoms. They haven't had an overt stroke as it's defined by stroke, but you see the other symptoms of vascular disease. And that's significant. That's that's important. That's why we're talking about this right now. And you see that in your clinic all the time. All the time. People coming in for cognitive impairment and after an evaluation, when we do MRIs of their brains and do neuropsychological testing, it actually tends to be more vascular with white matter disease being prominent. Okay. Now, 
as far as geographic disparities are concerned, there is a term um, for those of us living in the United States, there's a term um, called uh, the stroke belt. Now, the stroke belt is a combination of different states and areas where stroke mortality is about 20% higher in those areas. The stroke belt identif is identified as uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, and Arkansas. And the mortality is the highest in the buckle of the stroke belt. And the buckle of the stro stroke belt is like right there in the middle. I believe it's um, Alabama and Mississippi where yeah. mortality is 40% higher. And this has persisted um, throughout uh, the recent decades and it's per particularly evident in uh, black men. And uh, despite you know the 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 recent uh, advances in stroke prevention, um, they haven't really been able to curtail this 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 issue. Yeah. And uh, obviously, there's um, um, some uh, risk factors that are more prominent, um, but it has to do mostly with access to healthcare and access to information uh, about stroke prevention. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I'm belaboring this point. I'm, I'm I'm overstating it, but it's important. Uh, as in real estate, location, 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 and healthcare and public health. And we are interested in public health. We're not interested in the one-off food, one-off vitamin, one-off whatever, um, or eliminating everything. Uh, it, we're about public health. And in public health, it's about access to information, access to resources, and access to healthcare systems. Those three things must be addressed, and information being the first. In fact, in our Healthy Minds Initiative, in, uh, which is our nonprofit, we're so proud that that information is the first thing we're focusing in, the second and the last. Promulgate information that's meaningful, science-based, and it's not. We would, you would think that something as massive as 750,000 plus strokes would, would, would you know, get the signal up for people to get aware of it and become, um, uh, you know, get a movement going. It's not, and yet, um, um, because if it does that, then the next step is search for a method of how to implement change in communities. Absolutely. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a failure on our part as it public really health. Is. It really is, and I hope that um, we're able to identify these systemic issues uh, which are, you know, largely due to um, social determinants of health. Yeah. All right, uh, let's jump to some of the risk factors for stroke. Um, and the first and the foremost is high blood pressure. High blood pressure is the most prominent risk factor for both primary strokes and secondary stroke, which means you know people who have strokes the first time or people who have strokes after having a minor stroke. And it's, it's one of the things that is um, not being addressed appropriately for many reasons. Blood pressure is something that is usually not checked at home. Uh, people usually go to the doctor, you know, every three months if they're, you know, if, if they have good insurance. And, you know, one reading doesn't really tell us about the spectrum of changes that our blood pressure goes through during the, during the day, during the week, during the month. And it is a major risk factor for, for having a stroke. As a matter of fact, it is the, the, the number one risk factor, both um, worldwide and in the United States. Yeah, yeah. And it affects about one third of U.S. adults over the age of 20. 
And, um, you know, unfortunately, um, the goal, the optimal goal of blood pressure is not communicated very well by general practitioners and primary care physicians to patients. And I'm not sure if it has to do with not having enough time to communicate it, but there are times when blood pressures can go up to 140 and 150 and patients are not made aware of the gravity of the situation yeah. to keep an eye on it and keep a track on it and making sure that they address it with both lifestyle and medication. I think blood pressure is probably one of the most important risk factors for health in general. Uh, and, yeah, and one of the reasons for this almost like insouciance and indifference I wouldn't call it indifference, but but lack of uh, m movement on, on blood pressure is that we really don't have a good measurement system because the best we can do is just have a blood pressure machine at home and check it once, twice, or three times. And even that, when you don't see much change, you kind of give up on it. Right? And, and, uh, and then the treatments are not... that We are able to treat it over time, but not the day-to-day, minute-to-minute vacillations. Um, that, and, and once we get better at detecting blood pressure or recording blood pressure on a continu continuous basis, I've said this many times, the day that we have a tool that can measure blood pressure continuously, healthcare ha will have changed across the board. Absolutely, because it's the major risk factor for so Everything. many cardiovascular diseases. Heart, heart attacks, um, uh, anginas, Stroke. strokes. Um, um, uh, cognitive decline, kidney it's disease, the main, the kidney, the, everything across the board. So blood pressure is critical. It's better. It's, and I tell people, one of the first things I tell people, if I even detect some vascular disease, even some white matter disease, get a blood pressure diary going, get it, you know, check your blood pressure in the morning before you take medicines and, and anything else, um, or, or eat breakfast or anything. And then one in the afternoon or at night. And if you can do it three times and just keep recording that on a regular basis, because that trajectory tells us more than the one off. Um, uh, so blood pressure is not communicated or the importance and the significance of, of continuous blood pressure measurement is not communicated well enough. Absolutely. And there are multiple guidelines that are uh, published, um, you know, every few years. And the American Heart Association publishes advisory uh, commentary on blood pressure. And we have, um, you know, organizations like the 8th Joint National Committee or the GNC-8 yes, yeah. that indicated that people who have, you know, blood pressure that runs over 140 or 150 systolic, they should be treated. And for those who have um, high cholesterol and diabetes, they actually have to be treated even at a lower number. Um, so, so there's several guidelines that emphasize the importance of addressing it right away and also emphasize on lifestyle changes like a diet, exercise, regardless of their age, of their diabetes, for prevention of stroke and cardiovascular disease. I mean, not again, just to reiterate a little more, not to scare, but to, uh, to emphasize and to um, you know, get people more aware of blood pressure. We're, the brain is the most vascular organ in the body. We're talking about arteries, then arterioles, which are smaller, then all the way down to capillaries, which are these small little arteries uh, that, that, that are very thin, thin-walled. They don't even have muscle around the walls, and they're feeding oxygen, exchanging oxygen across the wall to cells at the cellular, at the neuron level. And they're, it's a tenuous system. I mean, these are endothelial cells or uh, lined or when they're smaller, not even that, just one layer of cell, very tenuous. And when the blood pressure goes up once, twice, three times, you're, you're damaging definitely the smaller vessels. 
and nobody records those. Uh, you, you only see that much later when millions of them have been damaged and you see this white matter disease. This is pre, or as a big stroke when one of the large vessels uh, uh, is, uh, is affected. So uh, blood pressure is working continuously. It's almost that the, the river, Colorado River, when we saw through the, uh, the, those big walls of, of, of uh, stone and mountain cutting through that. Imagine high blood pressure, not even very high, 140s, 145, 150, continuously, hour upon hour, day upon day, pumping, pushing against older vessels that have already been hit many times. They're going to damage uh, those vessels. So if there's anything that we should emphasize and create a system around, it's blood pressure first. I agree completely. And when you look at some lifestyle uh, factors that reduce the risk of stroke, they actually do it indirectly through reducing hypertension. Yeah. So, you know, eating a healthy diet, which we'll talk about, essentially reduces the risk of the spasming of the arteries. It can actually stabilize plaques. It can stabilize atherosclerosis and prevent the adhesion of platelets to you know, cause more occlusion in arteries, whether it's exercise. Exercise causes vasodilation and regulation of heart rate. So all of these actually reduce the risk of blood pressure and it actually stabilizes blood pressure so people don't have a stroke. Or stress, stress which raises cortisol um, um, to high levels, which then actually causes uh, increased blood pressure and damage to the vessels. Yeah. So that was blood pressure. Now let's move on to hyperlipidemia or high cholesterol. Now the um, evaluation and treatment of hyperlipidemia is a critical part of stroke management and prevention. And it has been emphasized over and over again by the Joint Commission, by American Heart Association. And we have so many uh, studies from different cohorts and different lines of research showing that when people manage their cholesterol levels, they can lower the risk of stroke, both um, ischemic and hemorrhagic. And um, as far as numbers go, as far as the target uh, is concerned, it depends. You know, for people who are otherwise healthy, um, the goal is to keep it, you know, between 70 to 100 milligrams per deciliter. If people have existing uh, high, high blood pressure or diabetes or cholesterol, that that window actually shortens and, and it kind of becomes more narrow. And so it's important for, uh, you know, people to reduce their cholesterol. And there's a sense of urgency to do that because the sooner you reduce cholesterol, the, the lower your risk factor is within a uh, given period of time. And one of the most important things that we do in the emergency room while the patient is having symptoms of stroke is giving them a very large dose of, um, you know, statins or cholesterol medications, because not only does it lower LDL cholesterol, which has been associated with stroke, but it has a pleiotropic effect, which means that it has an anti-inflammatory effect. And there are multiple studies like the SPARKLE study that showed that high doses of statins given during the acu acute stroke period actually reduced the risk of having recurrent strokes. And it also stabilized the size of the stroke during that acute phase. So there are multiple studies that have been done with that regards and um, LDL of anywhere between 70 to 100 or even lower than 70 reduces the risk of stroke in a dose response uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. All right, so that was hyperlipidemia. The next one is diet. Now we're kind of 
coming to um, the realm of lifestyle. Um, and as you all know, diet has been studied extensively, and I'm very happy to say that I was involved in studying dietary patterns, specifically the Mediterranean diet and stroke prevention. And when people eat a diet that is usually composed of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, nuts and seeds, and legumes, and it's lower in saturated fats that are derived from, say, red meat and cheese and chicken and things of that nature, they reduce their risk of stroke significantly, and multiple studies have been done in that regards. Absolutely. And and and, and the big diet, dietary thing when it comes to stroke is salt. <clears throat> in fact, in, in certain uh, countries like Japan, stroke risk was lower than than Western societies, but hemorrhagic stroke risk was higher, mm -hmm. and why? Because the the amount of salt that they they had in their diet was significantly higher. Salt singularly and and disproportionately affects blood pressure, so their their blood pressures were much higher. And when people have high blood pressure, especially these these blood pressures that jump up really quickly and and then vacillate they have a much higher risk of hemorrhagic strokes. So their ratio was not, you know, 87 and 13. There was actually much higher hemorrhagic risk. But ironically, as they became westernized, the hemorrhagic risk went down, but the total risk of stroke went up. So um, Western diet. So diet has that level of influence on some a major disease like stroke where you see the type of stroke changing, the amount of stroke and prevalence of strokes changing with just one decade of change in diet. Yeah, absolutely. Although a recent paper actually came out and I haven't had a chance to read the entire thing, but it came out the, yesterday that oh. was a review of um, ICH, which is intracerebral hemorrhage um, and uh, you know a cholesterol management and things of that nature. So we'll we'll talk about that some other time. But as as we're moving on, we're learning more and more of how important it is um, to address these factors. Some other studies uh, with regards to diet, you know, large cohort studies like the Nurses Health Study and the Health Professionals Follow Up Study, they have provided amazing examples of how dietary patterns are associated with lower risk of stroke, and in each and every one of them, it's essentially the same theme. You know. Uh, Eating more fruits, eating more vegetables has been associated with lower risk of stroke. And the highest protective effect in this particular study was from cruciferous vegetables and green leafy vegetables and also citrus fruits. Um, and to quote some numbers, each additional one serving per day of these food groups was associated with a 6% lower risk wow. of ischemic stroke, which is amazing, which is incredible. Um, what an interesting point was uh, caffeine or caffeinated drinks, even decaffeinated drinks, um, specifically coffee, decreased the risk of stroke by approximately 10% in this study, wow. which is interesting because sometimes uh, coffee can increase the risk Correct. for um, atrial fibrillation, heart arrhythmias, blood pressure. It can increase heart rate. Yeah. But in this particular study, maybe it had to do more with the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant component of coffee that reduced the risk of stroke. The, the one food that has been studied in this cohort and also in the Adventist Health Study cohort was um, sugary um, beverages like soda. 
um, soda and sugary beverages appear to increase the risk of stroke. And in this study, it increased the risk of stroke by 13% per serving per day. Wow. And 7% increased risk of ischemic stroke per daily serving of low-calorie soda. And I'm not sure if the low-calorie was associated with stroke specifically, but people who drink or who eat that kind of dietary pattern essentially, you know, eat other things that are highly processed as well. So yeah, I, I'm always a little incredulous about that. Right. Whether or I'm not, I'm, sh I'm not sure if it's the, it's the um, uh, uh, low calorie uh, drink or the fact that people who drink low calorie drinks eat a lot of processed they, foods. Yeah. Or they drink the low calorie food, but then with it eat the cheesecake. Well, we've seen a lot of people well, eating like Diet Coke you know, is not... pizza with Diet Coke as yes. if they're saving some calories exactly. by switching yeah. to Diet Coke. Um, but, you know, we'll talk about artificial sugar some other time, but there more recent studies have shown that when people drink diet soda, they don't have increased risk of weight gain or any other cardiovascular disease. So that's a different topic. It's funny how topics pop up from yeah, one stream exactly, of thought. Exactly. All right. Um, as far as fish goes, you know, there's really no evidence that fish uh, increases the risk of stroke. That's one thing that we haven't been able to find. However, when you look at the Mediterranean diet and the mind diet, a diet can be healthy with or without fish right. as far as stroke uh, is concerned. And the most important component that has been studied extensively is the inclusion of vegetables and fruits, especially cruciferous and green leafy vegetables and lower risk of stroke. The Predimid diet was another dietary mm -hmm. pattern that was studied extensively and it um, compared um, the Mediterranean diet supplemented with either extra virgin olive oil or mixed nuts compared to low fat diet. And um, the Mediterranean diet was characterized by intake of fruits and vegetables and whole grains and moderate intake of, of fish, lower intake of wine, poultry, meat and cheese and things of that nature. And it showed that people who consumed the Predimet pattern of a diet, mm -hmm. they had significant lower risk of stroke. So going on to, you know, multiple other studies, even in the REGARD study, yeah. uh, which focused more on, you know, black um, African-Americans, they found that, that a Mediterranean diet in that population reduced the risk of stroke significantly. Again, it's the consumption of a plant-based aspect of that dietary pattern that made um, a huge, huge difference. What, what was interesting to me that even... A, what appears to be a mechanical cause of stroke, a very common one, which is atrial fibrillation, which is when the uh, the heart starts beating abnormally. When it starts beating abnormally, and in the, in the um, ventricles or in the atria, the, there are two atrias and two ventricles, the clots start forming, and then these clots, if it's on the on the left side, they go directly to the uh, to the body, but if it's on the uh, uh, right side. They can actually go to the lung or they can go to the brain if there's a little hole through the heart. So um, atrial fibrillation is a very common cause and it seems to be completely mechanical, but even atrial fibrillation was affected by lifestyle. Yes. That's remarkable. We can see the effect through blood pressure. Blood pressure uh, over time increases the size of the heart. So therefore, when the size of the heart is affected, the vest, the the fibers that create the, the electrical activity are altered so you can get atrial fibrillation, yes. But even aside from the size of the heart being caused by lifestyle, atrial fibrillation itself was affected by lifestyle, which is remarkable that you uh, that you have so much influence on on all causes of stroke. 
well, it kind of makes sense because, you know, even the heart is innervated and vascularized by small little blood vessels. And if your blood vessels are unhealthy throughout, it's unhealthy in the heart as well. It's, it's unhealthy in the muscles of the heart yeah. as well and in the nodes that, you know, supply the electrical impulses for the heart to beat. So it's just fascinating. And perhaps we can actually have someone to give us a detailed picture of what atrial fibrillation is like. Correct. All right. Um, diabetes and metabolic syndrome is another risk factor for stroke. So, you know, as, as we all have uh, talked about diabetes in the past, it's an abnormal um, metabolic um, reaction to glucose. Uh, glucose is not metabolized appropriately. And even before one gets to the point of diagnosis of diabetes, having insulin resistance, mild abnormalities in um, metabolism of glucose, people tend to have damage to their vasculature, and that can increase risk of stroke as well as vascular cognitive impairment. And there have been multiple studies that indicate that. Again, the way to address this is obviously if it's during the acute stroke phase, it's medication, but over a long period of time, it's lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle. Tobacco use, as our patient Susan, um, you know, was a smoker, tobacco use is a very important and very prominent risk factor uh, for stroke. And, um, you know, fortunately, um, it has been addressed better than most lifestyle mm -hmm. factors. The American Heart Association comes up with the simple sevens or seven measures or seven risk factors that can be addressed throughout lifestyle and smoking is one of them. And they've, they've made wonderful changes um, based on their um, public health uh, campaigns to help people stop smoking. So public health works, public health campaigns work, education and resources work. Those are the things that we need to focus on at the population level. Um, and that's what we're doing with Healthy Minds Initiative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to give some numbers, um, current smokers, which means people who continue to smoke, they have at least a double risk of having stroke compared to those who don't smoke. And there is a dose-response relationship too. So the more cigarettes people smoke, the higher their risk of stroke is. And this has been studied in multiple population-based um, uh, you know, cohorts and ethnicities. It seems like there is a synergistic effect uh, of smoking with high blood pressure. When people smoke, they have higher blood pressure, which contributes to stroke risk as well. But this risk is very modifiable and the risk returns to normal or baseline after 10 years of abstinence. Mm -hmm. um, it falls drastically the first year and then slowly for the next nine years. And I think that's great news for people who are current smokers or have you know loved ones who smoke. There is a way to, to address it. Mm -hmm. Obesity is another one. Mm -hmm. um, as far as obesity is concerned, again, it has been compounded with metabolic syndrome. So people who have obesity tend to have higher uh, risk of developing hyperlipidemia or blood pressure or uh, insulin resistance. And it's a very complex risk factor that contributes to stroke risk. Um, the next one is sleep apnea, which yeah. you are very passionate about. And it's yeah. something that nobody really talks about too much. And I'm not sure how it actually has fallen off the grid as when it comes to um, screening for wellness in uh, primary care physicians' offices. Again, it's the same thing. The number of steps people have to take in order to get to know what the situation is and then to affect it. There are so many steps. I'm a neurologist that directly deals with the sleep lab. I mean, that's 
that's tremendous access. Yet even for me to put the reference, to get the process going, then the, the, the person gets tested in a clinic outside of their home. Yeah, now they do it a lot of the time at home, but then they, you lose something in that, in that test. Then afterwards to find out what the person has and then to bring the machines and then there's multiple steps. The more we can reduce the number of steps from identification to intervention to assessing the intervention and change, the better will be as far as uh, making a difference. And and sleep apnea is a complicated one, but it's an important one. It's a not just for stroke risk, dementia risk, um, uh, uh, every other disease heart you can disease, think. Heart, heart disease, cardiovascular out yeah. outcomes in general. For for the general public, you know, somebody who does not think that they have sleep apnea, what are some of the things that you would like for them to know and to keep an eye on? Yeah, if there's a partner that can watch you um, sleeping, um, not in a creepy way, but just uh, observing, um, you uh, if they're snoring, and they're snoring um, even minimally, but, but definitely if they're snoring loudly, it should be evaluated. If you're l looking at them and they're so holding... snoring. Snoring, yes. If they're holding their breath, uh, for seconds at a time where they're holding it and then they release or they actually jolt themselves out of sleep, that's a sign that they should be evaluated. If they're sleeping eight hours, yet they're still tired during the day, that's a sign that they're not getting, getting good sleep for right. multiple reasons, one of them being a sleep apnea, they should get evaluated. If they're trying to eat healthy and yet they're still gaining weight, not because lack of sleep changes metabolism in any way, it actually affects your judgment and you, even your memory of what you ate and what kind of food you ate is affected with sleep apnea. That should be evaluated. So all of those things are factors that should prompt you to get evaluation. These are reversible things. These are treatable things uh, that can profoundly affect us. We've all heard about the aphorism or statement that uh, penny wise, dollar foolish, right? Nowhere is that truer than in health. We do things like get a vitamin, yet we don't check our blood pressure regularly. We do things like, you know, um, do some exercise for a short period, which is important. I'm not, but yet we don't check our glucose, our, uh, you know, our uh, sleep status, and all of those things. Those are critical and easily modifiable. Yeah, absolutely. I do have to add something, and I think um, Roger um, in the community pointed that out as well that insurance coverage is the issue to many of these tests and treatments. Absolutely. <clears throat> I cannot tell you how many times we've talked about sleep apnea with our patients, you know, do all the, the screener, get them sleep study done. And then it basically just takes months to sometimes years yeah. for insurance companies to approve giving them the CPAP machine. And even when they get the CPAP machine, there's something wrong with it. And just, just it's so difficult. And it is. Um, hopefully we'll get to a point where these can be, you know, addressed, um, or there was a recall, like recently there was a recall of so many CPAP machines because they weren't working properly. So hopefully technology can step in and uh, address yes. some of these problems. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, now there's a pulse ox that can connect to your iPhone. So overnight you can put it on your finger. It, it, it detects if your blood, uh, blood oxygen levels go below 90%. Or whatever the number is, it will detect where you. And if your blood oxygen levels drop, that's a sign that you're not getting good sleep, and you're, you're you know you have uh, sleep apnea. 
So technology will come in and it will uh, probably save some of uh, some of the factors, including blood pressure. Yeah. We already have the diabetes thing, you know, this, this CGM, device, yes. CGM that you put on your arm and continuously look at your metabolism. And it's remarkable how that data is being used to revolutionize medicine. Hopefully soon there will be the same similar kind of uh, tools for blood pressure and for cholesterol and for other things as well. I just want to kind of put in, you know, like flag that, you know, as far as CGMs are concerned, it's becoming almost a fashion for people who don't even have diabetes or insulin resistance to wear CGMs. And you don't it, like it? I, well, I think it's unnecessary, you know, like people get freaked out if their glucose goes up after having breakfast or lunch. And, yeah. you know, that's a normal reaction to our to our uh, metabolism. And um, I think that much money spent on CGMs, if we actually transfer that to preventive, uh, you know, knowledge and education and telling people to take care of themselves with diet and exercise, I think that would be great. That's a different conversation. Yeah, I'm on the other side of that the side of that argument. I, I, you know me, I'm, I, I love data. Data is always helpful. Even right. things like TikTok, you, you know how much I've spoken about things like that. If the data goes out there, Initially, it will be used badly, inappropriately, fat in fashion, but data it has a self-cleansing power that's that's second to none. I think we're due for a debate. That's the first yes. disagreement. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> well, we'll have to talk about that yeah, because uh, it's a it's a huge topic. And if you look at Twitter, there's a lot of Twitter fights about wearing CGMs or not. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, no. I think I agree with you that hopefully it will come. And I think what you're pointing to is personalized medicine. Yes. You know, hopefully, you know, precision medicine where people can understand how their bodies react to certain environments and risk factors and addressing them before it becomes an issue. Right, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with that. All right. Physical activity. There's no shortage of information about physical activity and exercise, reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease and especially stroke. Yeah. Multiple studies from the Northern Manhattan study, from the Nurses Health study, different cohorts, large observational studies that have followed people for decades and decades show that when people engage in physical activity, whether that's leisurely physical activity of just moving around and being on their feet all the time, or people who do moderate to strenuous exercises, they reduce their risk of both ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes significantly. And obviously the brain health part of it, lower risk of Alzheimer's and cognitive impairment um, and improving longevity and quality of life, all of that has been documented. Absolutely, absolutely. Wonderful. It's fun. It's funny that you know everybody agrees on on exercise. Yes, but when it comes to nutrition, there's some disagreements. Chaos, yes. Right. One thing I don't know if you touched on, but I want to touch on is TIA. Right. Uh, and to me, TIA is critically important because it's much more prevalent than even stroke. And TIA presages, pre predicts stroke risk. TIA stands for transient ischemic attack. <clears throat> the same kind of symptoms that Aisha just described earlier, which is. Um, a facial droop or difficulty with language or slurred speech or weakness or even uh, altered mental state or vision loss, things of that nature. They, uh, by, by definition in TIA, it happens and it goes away before 24 hours or most often actually in minutes or hours. Yeah. And, and a lot of times people wait and then when it goes away, say, oh, it was nothing. They just pass it off. That's an opportunity to get it checked because TIAs have much higher likelihood of becoming strokes. And the earlier we detect it, the earlier we, we identify it, the more likely that the stroke won't happen. Absolutely. That's critical. So um, for yourself, for your loved ones, for your family, 
please spread this information about what the stroke symptomology could be. In fact, it could be anything, but the ones, the common ones we talked about, uh, fast, act fast, face, arm, you know, language, um, uh, all of that. Uh, where's the language on fast? Uh, speech. 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 Yeah. Okay, yes. like, uh, that was a, a brain infarct there. But, uh, and, and more importantly, even if you have those symptomology for a short period of time, that's an opportunity to to jump ahead of the, uh, the the disease and make sure that a stroke doesn't happen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And just to give you some statistics, um, you know, uh, about um, fifteen percent of all strokes are, are preceded by ATIA. Yes. And among people who have had an ischemic stroke where there's blockage of the artery with a clot about 40% of them have reported a TIA initially. Yeah. And so it's really, really important not to just brush it off as something that happened and, you know, um, and ignore it because it, it, can, uh, it can actually be a red flag for a severe stroke coming up. One of our friends in the community, uh, Sean, says that uh, uh, TIA is like a tremor before the earthquake. Yeah, it Beautiful is, analogy, but it's actually yeah. a much stronger tremor than usual. So it's a, you know, I'm just going to use an arbitrary number, a 7.0 tremor. Because remember, 40% of them, and the 40% of uh, tremors in Los Angeles don't go, go to become earthquakes. Let's hope not. That would oh, be goodness. terrible. Uh, but uh, we have a lot of tremors. Oh, yeah. Uh, but 40% uh, but, uh, of TIAs go on to become strokes yes that's, that's just remarkable so and and that's an opportunity lost right right yeah. and um, some people call uh, or refer to TIAs as mini strokes you know so uh, it could be if you hear the word mini stroke or TIA just know that these symptoms uh, by definition cannot last more than 24 hours so usually it's about 20 minutes of the symptoms up to 24 hours but after 24 hours if somebody has symptoms that's a stroke that's not a tia anymore yeah and it's important for people to get help well, i hope they get help as soon as it starts but it, that is one area that people you know kind of mess the the definition of tia yeah. versus a stroke with regards to va uh, vascular disease and cognition what I see and what the data shows is that there are several types. One is the slow, gradual decline. And you see the person, and we don't recognize that, uh, but the, especially if you're, you're, you've been with that person a long time and continuously, we don't recognize the slow decline. But others who, after years, all of a sudden see this loved one and say, oh, there's a slowness in their speech. There's a slowness in their gait. It's called bradyphrenia, which is slowness in thinking and talking, and bradykinesia, slowness in walking. And... That's a sign that there's vascular disease happening uh, underneath and cognition is slower. Um, the other one is stepwise, where you see a little decline and another little decline. Vascular dementia usually happens in that way. These little steps, steps. Like one day they wake up and there was a little decline that people noticed, but then that became the norm. And then another decline. Those are opportunities to get investigated early before it becomes a full-blown stroke. Yeah. Absolutely. All right. So let's take some questions from our let's lovely do. audience. Yes. It's so wonderful to see everybody here. 
um joshua's here from israel bijan is from england and we have so many people from the united states karen barb hi everyone all right so let's go ahead and take kirti's question or comment i think it's a question she said during my stroke i had a brief episode at 1 p.m i could feel the right leg collapsing and at the 3 p.m full stroke in the right arm and leg weakness and speech too i didn't get to the hospital till 8 30 p.m how did i last so long Kirti, we're so sorry to hear that you had that experience. Um, it all depends on multiple factors, right? It, it depends on the size of the clot, the artery that it's located in, how your body regulates. So, you know, when people tend to have a stroke, their blood pressure goes up all of a sudden. It's an auto regulation where your body and your brain essentially feels that it's not getting enough oxygen. So the heart actually pumps faster and your vessels spasm to get more oxygen and more blood to the to the brain. And um, thank goodness you're well. Thank goodness you're okay. And you did seek help until then. Um, it's pretty scary. Yeah, and, and this uh, nature of a stroke that persists for a long time, yet the damage is minimal, is, is, a, is usually tells you about the, the, the nature, underlying physiology, pathology of the stroke. So uh, our vasculature is pretty unique. You have the two arteries in the back, which are the vertebral arteries, and the two arteries in the front, which are the carotids. They actually come above the brainstem, and then they join. We call it the spider or the circle of Willis. They connect. So there's a lot of redundancy. So even if one of them closes slowly over time, the other vessels contribute to, to whatever vessel uh, that, 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 that is lost. So the, if the closure is slow you, over time, you might actually see the stroke, but it had enough time where the redundancy feeds the other blood vessels. So that circle of Willis is is very interesting redundant system that we've created, but that's not for acute strokes. It's a slow over time stroke that, 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 that you see. The collaterals that we have that are built during our lifetime, the small little arteries that support each other, and there's small little leeways to get more oxygen to the brain actually can be a, a, a very prominent uh, factor that saves the brain and, you know, keeps things intact. All right, moving on to the next one. Bijan says, thank you for the story. It's good to know that we can help people prevent it. Absolutely. Ardith says, can high blood pressure cause a stroke? How can I lower high blood pressure besides medication? Yes, so definitely you asked this question while we were talking about the risk factors. So so you heard that, Ardith. And um, how do you lower uh, blood pressure besides medication? Lifestyle. I mean, yeah. there, there's been a lot of studies that when people live a healthy lifestyle which essentially comes to the neuro concept mm -hmm. the nutrition exercise uh, stress management restorative sleep and identification of sleep disorders like sleep apnea when these factors are addressed blood pressure can be lowered significantly but but it's critical that we don't separate this from medication side if you're experiencing not you in general if somebody's experiencing regular blood pressure is above 140 and 150 and they're going to wait for lifestyle to take an effect, you're, you're damaging your brain. So in the meantime, blood pressure medication should be instituted, that should be used. You should monitor regularly to make sure that the blood pressure is being managed in the morning, afternoon, at nighttime. Those are, there are different mechanisms at play. There's a reason why people have the most strokes and most um, uh, heart attacks in the early morning, because remember, uh, as, as the morning comes around, melatonin goes down and cortisol goes up. And cortisol is a stimulant. And that creates, if you have a propensity for heart attack, if you have a propensity for arrhythmia, it's going to cause 
that to happen. So in the meantime, until lifestyle takes over, blood pressure measurement, surveillance, you have to be on top of it better than any. Don't worry about your doctor. Mm -hmm. You become your own doctor and, and while the doctor is checking you, but you have to be on top of your blood pressure two to three times a day right. and take your medication and annoy your doctor. Right. And uh, what we usually uh, recommend is, you know, buy a diary or a, call yes. it your blood pressure, you know, journal. Um, draw a line vertically on the page, uh, make an AM and a PM column, and check your blood pressure first thing in the morning when you wake up and right before you go to bed. Yeah. I tell my patients to keep their blood pressure monitor on their nightstand, just there. Take a few minutes of rest before you check your blood pressure. Always rely on a brachial artery or an arm a blood pressure monitor, sphygmomanometer, instead of a wrist one because the wrist one is not very specific. And write down your blood pressure and take that journal or notebook with you to every doctor visit yes. so that they see the pattern instead of this one reading that may not be indicative of your baseline. If you can do it three times a day, even better. I mean, I, I want to make sure I don't create failure by, by increasing the task. But we're talking about somebody who's at risk. So uh, be on top of it yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and by the way, if you're on a blood pressure medication and you're recording and you're seeing blood pressures that are high once, twice, don't just attribute it, oh, I had pressure, I had stress, I had this. This is where I left it off in a weird place where I said, I know your doctor. But call the doctor, call the nurse practitioner, call the PA, whoever's the person that you can get on a regular basis and say, this is my pattern. Send them the blood pressure readings and the blood pressure has to be adjusted. Their annoyance is not uh, even relevant to the fact that this could be damaging your brain. Absolutely. Um, all right. Jenna says, that story brought back memories and anxiety about an oral migraine I had. I thought I was stroking out. So scary. Yes, Jenna. The, so for those of you who don't know oral migraine, so we have migraine symptoms that resemble strokes. Sometimes they don't even come with headaches, but they're called migraines where you tend to have focal neurological deficits, whether it's numbness or weakness of a part of the brain, I'm sorry, part of the body, and it's associated with sensory and motor symptoms. Um, an oral migraine is very, very similar to a TI or a stroke. As a matter of fact, that's one of the differential diagnoses when somebody comes into the emergency room. And, you know, but they all have to go through the same workup of stroke. We always assume, we always assume the worst. And then when we can't find it, it you know, it could potentially be an oral yeah. migraine. And there are treatments for it now. It's called complicated migraine as well, right? Yes, so. complex migraine, Compl complicated yeah. migraines. They're trying to stay away from the terminology. Know, they yeah. want to become very specific because it almost sounds like, oh, I don't know what it is, so it's a complicated yeah. it, migraine. Like the term we use in medicine, <laughs> idiopathic. Idiopathic, yeah. yeah. So they're they're trying to change that. But yes, that that is that is a very scary thing, and I have seen so many of them in the emergency room. Cassandra says, what a devastatingly vivid example. Thank you for taking the time for that. You're very welcome, Cassandra. Um, Kirti was asking about the difference between TIA and a stroke, um, and we discussed that. Um, but, uh, Janet says, what if you're living alone and no one is there to make that phone call? How do you know if you're having minor strokes? Beautiful. So uh, for people who live alone and uh, they are scared of these things, not scared, but, but they're proactive. I love the word proactive. Or they're of age that they're of, uh, of risk or they've shown some signs that they might be at risk, put safety measures in the house. You know, those machine devices where you can call people, you can press, you can pull, uh, uh, it's on your neck. 
those are important. Now we have the technology. Now we have support systems. We have support structures. Even your some of your healthcare systems already, like Kaiser and others, in fact, most healthcare systems have those kind of secondary measures because for them it becomes cheaper. They don't have, you know, if, if they can catch the disease, the process, this, the event before it becomes permanent or devastating, they are going to invest in it. So create a system where if if anything happens, be it a stroke or a heart attack or a fall, that you have uh, at your disposal a way of contacting somebody that can get to you and take care of you. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Carol is saying, um, what is the difference between a burst brain aneurysm and a stroke? I had a former <clears throat> one in 2005. So aneurysm is a type of stroke. Aneurysm is when there's a little bubbling or outpouching of an artery in the brain. Usually it's... Um, we uh, genetically a, a significant proportion of population have that proclivity, that tendency, and and then blood pressure doesn't help either. That uh, contributes, but either the, there's some bleeding as a, at the edges of that where they get a headache, severe headaches, and it hasn't burst. That's a fortunate thing because if you can catch it before it bursts, then they can put a coil, they can close it off, all kinds of stuff they can do before it bursts. But or if it bursts, then it bleeds. So it's a hemorrhagic stroke. Uh, one of the causes of hemorrhagic stroke is blown aneurysm. Right. So as far as terminology is concerned, you know, a stroke is when brain cells essentially die because of either not getting oxygen or being pressed by too much bleeding as, as a mass effect on them. So a burst brain aneurysm is also a kind of a stroke. You have ischemic stroke because of clot and hemorrhagic stroke because of bleeding. And like Dean said, the burst brain aneurysm is a type of the bleeding stroke or hemorrhagic stroke. And and if you had an aneurysm and you've caught it, or if you, you're here and talking to us and doing well, it's critical to you be your own advocate getting imaging on a regular basis, making sure the thing that actually affects other aneurysms doesn't mean that if you had one aneurysm, you're going to have higher risk of others, but blood pressure measurement, blood pressure is critical, and then your risk can be reduced significantly. Yes. Kersey says, I was extremely emotionally upset and angry on December 31st to January 1st, and a stroke happened on January 2nd. I wonder if I caused it due to the anger I felt. Uh, no, you didn't cause it. Um, anger can contribute, but there has to be other variables as well. Um, 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 a person must have some underlying um, um, risk, um, atherosclerosis, vessel disease, uh, arrhythmias, things of that nature. And anger just adds to it because of cortisol. And the cortisol makes the heart go faster. So if there's a tendency to create clots or tendency to have atrial fibrillation, then it's more likely to have it under those situations. Absolutely. Or there's vasospasm because the blood pressure goes so high that there's vasospasm or blood pressure goes so high because there's a burst artery. So by itself, usually no, but as a contributor, absolutely yes. Yep, absolutely. Thank you for that question. Um, Bijan says, is it similar in England? He's referring to um, the stroke yes. statistics. Um, yes. So um, I just pulled up the stroke the latest stroke statistics uh, from stroke.org.uk. And uh, the key statistics uh, showed that a stroke occurs every five minutes. And every five minutes, somebody has a stroke in, mm. in the UK. There are about 100,000 people who have strokes every year and 1.3 million stroke survivors in the UK. 
It is the fourth leading cause of death in the UK. And guess what the number one leading cause of death in the UK Alzheimer's. is? Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's So disease. the numbers are a little different than the United States. It's actually higher than the United States. In the US, it's number five. In UK, it's number four. And in, in US, Alzheimer's is number five, although I think that's an understatement because of lack of identification. In UK, Alzheimer's is number one. Yeah. All right. Annette says, not diabetic nor hypertensive, but had cotton wool spot on my retina last year. I'm worried that it is a warning sign of vascular issue. Are there a lab or vascular test that can indicate one is at risk? So the retina is a continuation of your brain. And it's such a remarkable field to, to, to look at the back of the eye and see vascular changes. Uh, uh, the nicking that you see with the high blood pressure where arteries actually cross and, and um, press on veins or the cotton wool where you see these little white spots, usually as a result of diabetes or pre-diabetes. Um, and, and then other things where you see the yellowing of the back of the eye because of the extravasation of blood uh, there, which or blood, blood, products, yeah. blood products, which change and change color. Um, get an eye exam, get a retinal exam. That, that's a great predictor of disease where you can catch it early enough and follow it over time. That's the beauty. That's the one vascular place that you can follow over time to see worsening or improvement for that matter. So, um, yeah. And as far as what to check over time beyond the eye, the retina, in your case, you should follow, follow those measures. And with a doctor that is good at uh, predicting disease from the eye um, um, is the blood pressure, cholesterol, diabetes, and even prediabetes. We're talking about insulin resistance. You know, um, hemoglobin A1Cs that are not above, you know, 7.0, but are between, you know, uh, 6 and 7 for that for that matter, 6. Uh, so th those are important because they are causing some damage already. Absolutely. Beautifully stated. All right. And, okay. Oh, and so are there labs and vascular tests? I, w I wanted to add that you're, um, you know, if, if somebody comes up with, um, pathologies like that, your doctor should be able to um, order, you know, vascular tests, yeah. depending on multiple different factors, but things like carotid artery um, ultrasound can actually tell whether there is some measure of atherosclerosis or not. And then physically, you know, um, ca cardiac calcium score can be detected. Um, these are some of the additional imaging that can be done along with blood tests to look at insulin metabolism, glucose metabolism, cholesterol metabolism, etc. Right. Bijan has another question. Is it the same for blacks everywhere or does it depend on where they live? Is it diet and lifestyle dependent or gene or something else? It's environment and, and lifestyle dependent. So it's not just uh, the ubiquitous, it's not the same across the board everywhere. You remember we talked about even APOE4 and Alzheimer's risk in Nigerians and Africa and Nigerians that came to the United States. The risk changed. What so the genes didn't change, the population didn't change. What changed was lifestyle and environment. So it varies depending on environment, it varies depending on the, the public health mm -hmm. information and access and uh, prevalence in that country. Uh, when they go to a Scandinavian country, for example, the numbers change significantly because the, the healthcare system is great there. Information dispensing, uh, getting access to doctors, I'm not making a political statement. It, it is what it is. We all, the data is the data. Um, and uh, so um, that's that's uh, it varies from country to country because of lifestyle, environment, and access to information resources. Yep, absolutely. Sunita says, "How long does it? Uh, how long does one need to take aspirin after 
uh, an ischemic stroke? And is there any benefit to prophylactic aspirin? So, you know, answering your second question, yes, there is a benefit to prophylactic aspirin depending on the type of stroke. You know, you never give aspirin or antiplatelets for a bleeding stroke, but for ischemic stroke, definitely. Um, and there have been multiple studies that have been done on aspirin and other antiplatelet agents. And the length depends on the type of stroke that one has. Usually, um, it's, you know, aspirin only for the first stroke, and it's usually for a life. There, you know, the, it has been associated with significant reduction of stroke, and it's a medication that hasn't been associated with poor outcomes or major side effects. Yeah, uh, the, the 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 data on using aspirin for people who have none of these things is actually changed. That's true. Yes. Yeah, so uh, if you don't have strokes, with no if you vascular don't have the, risk factors, the vascular risk factors. Uh, uh, that uh, it shows that especially if you're older, the risk of bleeding is higher than the benefit. Absolutely, there's no evidence for use of it. Yeah, yeah. but she actually but, said yeah. specifically after an ischemic stroke. Beautiful. Now, Beautiful. Um, for people who have had more than uh, you know one time stroke, we actually add another agent on top of aspirin. That's why dual antiplatelet therapy is something that is very common, and one can be on the dual antiplatelet therapy for as long as three months, and then continue continuing with one um, antiplatelet agent from then on. But it just varies from case to case and from stroke to stroke, and there are multiple other factors that come into play when it comes to decision-making. Sean says, arterial endothelial health is destiny. The ability of the arteries to contract and relax to respond and adapt to changes in needs of the body. That's a great statement. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, Lynn says, um, what about blood pressure increases due to exercise? Yeah, not only that, even, you know, whenever people talk about uh, uh, vascular health, they talk about vasoconstriction. Vasoconstriction by itself is, is, is not a good picture of health of the arteries. Exercise actually initially creates vasoconstriction, also creates high blood pressure. Uh, but if it's done in the context that we're talking about, uh, over time actually it's beneficial. We talk about this data with uh, extra virgin olive oil. You know, they keep bringing up the fact that it's it's vasoconstriction and it causes when they they looked at you know uh, these factors in in isolation and <clears throat> and in transient form, not over time. <clears throat> the same is true with exercise. There's vasoconstriction initially. There's uh, increased high blood pressure, but it's in the context of all the other positive things. This actually becomes beneficial. So we have to take it in that context. Kate great says, question. Yeah, great question. Kate says, are severe migraines a couple of times a week a warning sign? Well, depends. Depends. So uh, migraines have been associated. We did a, a paper um, a few years ago and, and looking at transient global amnesia. Very interesting topic. We wrote a book chapter on it where uh, all of a sudden somebody has loss of memory, anterograde memory. They know the people around them, but they don't know what happened for the last 24 hours or longer, where they are. All of these things happen, and then it goes away. That just does the name transient. Um, and uh, we looked at all the factors. We looked at national databases, and the one factor that stood out with that was migraines, but also vascular disease. So there is a correlation between migraines and chronic migraines. Both of us had migraines in the past, and and vascular disease. Um, it varies situation to situation, so you really have to make sure that um, you know um, uh, you have a good doctor for your migraine treatment. There, there, we have, we're learning so much about migraine. In fact, we will have a podcast just about headaches and migraines. Yes. 
um, because it is such a rich and um, knowledge-filled field now. We know so much about it. In fact, uh, we've we've been put in charge of the only lifestyle book in the country, the um, uh, of the neuro side of it. And one of the chapters is headaches and migraines. And I'm doing this with a with a physician, um, and uh, we'll talk with the people that are writing the chapter. And uh, so you'll get uh, much more detail about migraines. But the short of it is, yes, there is some correlation between vascular disease and migraines. But this is not to scare you no, either. So, no, no. you know, it just depends on the etiology of the migraine. Sometimes migraines uh, happen because people have high blood pressure or people may have an underlying vascular disease in the brain. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, we're trying not to scare you that, you know, this could be a warning sign. But it's really, really important for you to if get it evaluated, get it tested with a neurologist who is specialized in headache. We actually have headache specialists and they will do specific types of imaging. But, you know, to Dean's point, there have been multiple studies that show that there's a correlation. And as a matter of fact, there've been a lot of MRI imaging studies that people who suffer from migraines tend to have white matter disease, which means, you know, damage to the smaller blood vessels uh, in the deeper aspect of the brain. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Which, which brings us to white matter. Yeah. Um, Sean says, I've heard a lot about gray matter. What what exactly is white matter? So the gray matter is the cells themselves on the outside. Well, it's, there are some gray matter inside the brain as well, different parts. But, but the for outside, the most part, it's on the outside. On the outside. There are six layers and it's beautiful and the cortex. And, and then the connections between them is the white matter. Only a neurologist will say it's beautiful. Oh, it is absolutely <laughs> the universe in a box. It's a, it's, um, so these connections between them are, are, have myelin sheets around them. And so when you do imaging, the, the, there's a color dis, the differentiation. That's actually planned by programming where you can actually differentiate between the connections. And they call that white matter. Um, and white matter can, uh, can be affected because it's more susceptible to vascular disease as a result of vascular disease, as a result of inflammation, or, or, or even commonly as a result of traumatic brain injury where the brain moves and the part that is affected the most is the connections between. So you get this shearing effect on the white matter. So that the, you'll see the connections. There are beautiful images. Of course, they've, it's what they call post-processing where they put coloring and everything after the fact through uh, computer science. But you can see the connections. We should share that with our population Absolutely. Uh, to see these beautiful pictures they've created. Well, to be honest with you, when I, you know, when I was going over the pre preparation notes for this podcast, I realized that the small vessel disease and white matter disease is such a huge topic that it deserves another hour on its own. So we'll talk about that. And this is a very common uh, question that we're asked on a regular basis where somebody gets a, an MRI of their brain for some reason and the report says white matter disease and everybody's scared and concerned of what that essentially means. And they don't do anything about it. Because, no, no, no. Because we don't have protocols for it. They say, oh, you just have some white matter or you have significant white matter disease or the genetic types like Binnenzweigner's and others uh, are much more uh, scary. But even there, they don't say anything about it. Exactly. So, so we'll, Sean, we'll talk about that in detail with you all. All right. Kirti says, how important is it to exercise in the heart rate range, which is safe? What is safe? Varies, varies. Um, for the general population, there's a formula where you, uh, that you take the heart rate, subtract your age, and it should be between such and such 80% that we can give you that formula. Um, but uh, safe for most people, if you don't have heart disease, if you if you don't have a congestive heart failure or enlargement of the heart, if you don't have arrhythmias uh, for those, it's it's to the point where you get tired and short of breath. 
But if you have any of those, then it has to adjust. And that's between you and your physician to figure out because it's, it becomes complicated, a little complicated then, to figure out how to start at the safest, lowest level and slowly increase it to the point that you can actually give more uh, resilience to the heart, to the vessels. That uh, So that varies for people who have certain end-stage diseases like congestive heart failure. Absolutely. Sunita says, any evidence for red rice yeast for cholesterol? So she means lowering cholesterol. There may be some, but it's not very strong. And it's definitely not as strong as the evidence for statins. All right. Um, let's go to the next question. Bijan says, so is the APOE gene a risk factor for stroke due to its higher cholesterol-making properties? Well, I, I think, you know, abnormal metabolism of cholesterol. Um, the APOE gene and risk of stroke. Yeah, it's not as strong and uh, as it is for dementia. So it speaks to the fact that this APOE4, which, uh, which transports and uh, influences lipids, is more... It has more of an effect in the brain. And when you listen to our podcast uh, um, on, on APOE4 with Dr. Uh, Yassin, he goes into the detail of how APOE4 functions differently in the brain as opposed to the rest of the body as well. So there are some differences between how it operates in the brain as opposed to the periphery, um, that, which speaks to the differential risk as far as um, uh, dementia and stroke is concerned. Our Bijan is asking a question um, and kind of points to the complexity of lifestyle. Um, he says, if one has chronic stress, would a healthy diet help reduce the risk of stroke or not significantly enough? Yes, it would. Definitely. It definitely would, yeah. yes. And so every small incremental measure of healthy lifestyle makes a difference, even if there are some constant ones or ones that we can't really change significantly. Absolutely. Okay, um, going down. For you guys that are here in this forum, um, you're already here, part of the annual program. You're going to get a, another course, which is coaching course, then in a couple of months, which already is actually ready, but we're doing it in a systematic way. Uh, the nutrition course, which is amazing. You'll have your own certificate, your own, uh, you know, everything. And then I already uh, have created a, a massive course on anxiety and stress, uh, about 40,000 words that, that, that will be released next year. It's ready, but we want to do it systematically and don't overwhelm you. There's no extra to this it's part of this whole forum that you'll get on a, for those that are interested in that and i'm very proud of that because it's very neuroscience based as opposed to soft uh, uh i wouldn't call psychology soft but um the usual way that people approach stress and anxiety great great thank you all right so the next question is um let me just go to the next question lisa says does PVC cause stroke? Um, so PVC stands for premature ventricular contractions. And they usually happen when the electrical signal to start your heartbeat comes from, um, you know, from a different chamber. And it's very common and it's usually not dangerous. There have been some studies done that it might mildly increase your risk of stroke, but it usually happens if one has other risk factors. So it's a compounding effect. So for example, if people have heart disease or some sort of a congenital heart defect, and on top of it, if they have high cholesterol and abnormal glucose metabolism, it could potentially be a risk factor, but usually it's not a major factor at all. Okay, I think we're going to stop the questions yeah. here and we are going to answer all the other ones on the homepage. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope this was helpful and we look forward to speaking with you all again very, very soon. 
Have a wonderful day and Have talk to you guys soon.